This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, along with Kevin Cirilli, of course, our Bloomberg uh, News Washington Chief Washington Correspondent of Bloomberg Radio and TV, host of Bloomberg Sound On, a 99.1 in the nation's capital. June Grosso, legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio, also with us. We've talked a lot about election integrity. It's been called into question throughout the campaign and really the voting process, as well as the actual counting of the votes. Our next guest is well-known to our Bloomberg audience. He's a member of the National Council on Election Integrity. It's a bipartisan group of more than 40 government, political, and civic leaders who are devoted to defending the legitimacy of our elections. We are, of course, talking about former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff, who served under President George W. Bush. He's the co-founder and executive chairman of the Chertoff Group, and uh, he joins us on the phone on this Friday. Uh, Michael, nice to have you here with uh, Kevin and June and myself. You know, I asked this of our last guest um, in Georgia, and I want to put it to you. What confidence do you have in this year's voting process and the counting of the votes ultimately? You know, I think actually it's been an extraordinary display on the part of voters and on the part of state and local election officials of exactly how you want to conduct an election in a democratic country. We've had unprecedented turnout, I think 160 million people. Uh, people who uh, were had the opportunity to vote by mail did so in great numbers. Others stood online for extended periods of time to cast votes in person. There was some concern early on about interference and intimidation of voters. That did not materialize. By and large, the state and local officials have been efficient and careful in counting the ballots. Not surprisingly, there are always some delays. You never get to count the same day. But again, there hasn't been any indication of any kind of significant fraud or misbehavior. So that's all good. And I think we should take a lot of confidence in the fact that our citizens and our state and local officials have done exactly what the Constitution wants. Well, and what's interesting, too, is and I think and as we look at these 50 different states and the different you know, processes in terms of how they collect the vote, count the vote, what's allowed, what's not. You know, do you believe that it is necessary that we have some kind of national system, um, an easier system, so that whether it's an app or so-called, you know, some other kind of system that makes it easier to collect the vote, to count the vote, to give access to everybody to vote, you know, in the process in an election? Or does that create new security concerns? Actually, ironically, online voting would, in in the view of many people, create security risks that we don't have now. Nowadays, we've got such widely distributed voting that it would be impossible for somebody to affect the vote count itself. I mean, they can have disinformation Mm -hmm. and lie about the vote count, but in terms of actually changing votes, you could not do that at scale. If you did it all online, you would candidly be raising a risk, which I think at this point we probably don't want to do. Let me ask you this. It, there, before the election, there was a lot of talk about possible hacking by foreign nations and which nation was going to try. Have you seen any evidence that that happened at all? I, I've not seen any significant evidence of, of hacking into the voting infrastructure itself. And here I want to give credit to uh, my old agency, DHS, the cybersecurity uh, cyber agency there under Chris Krebs have been working for months 
with state and local officials to upgrade their security and uh, give them the tools they need to protect themselves. Now, we've seen disinformation, both from overseas and domestically, and we've seen some hacking or efforts to hack into campaigns, but not the voting infrastructure itself. I, I, can I jump in here? Uh, and thank you so much for making the time. Kevin Cerulli here, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You know, I, I talk to so many people on both sides of the aisle who say, why were we only talking about these elections for the past six months to nine months? I mean, we should be thinking about election security 20 years from now. We should be thinking about the threats 20 years from now. How do we get back to a country where our election security, and I agree, I mean, you know, Republicans, Democrats also noting there was not a major breach and whatnot, but how do we get back to a, a country where we're, we're thinking 20 years down the line about the prospect of threat and not 20 minutes up the clock? Well, I think this is part of what we expect our government to be doing, uh, which it's done rather unevenly in the last uh, couple of years, which is to be strategic about threats, to recognize that we need to anticipate what might be threats in the future. And frankly, right now, it looks as if disinformation and manipulation of the media is a bigger threat than actual attacks on infrastructure. So I think we need to have a discussion about our general political processes about the roles and responsibility of the media, because that is likely to be, at least in the medium term, where we see some of the uh, most disruptive activities. Well, and it's, I mean, it's such a good point. I mean, because it also comes down to, you know, you look at what they're doing in, in France and what Emmanuel Macron's having to do with Austria as a result of the horrific terrorist attacks over there. And not to go geopolitical for a second, they're having to now, they're facing the same concerns about how terrorists are 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 using the First Amendment and freedom of speech against the very democracies that 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 helped create them. So how do we balance that, sir? The the protection of freedom of speech with the very real threat that you just outlined for us about media institutions that are getting taken advantage of by hostile foreign actors. And I have to be honest, domestic actors as well. We've got wow, a, a of rise course, of domestic extremism. Uh-huh. And we've got uh, conspiracy theorists who have been running wild on social media. But I have to be honest, the mainstream media has also been guilty of being sloppy in vetting things, of rushing to put things out in, alarming, uh, in an alarming voice when it turns out at the end of the day it's really a more nuanced issue. Some of this is a matter of professionalism. Some of it is we need to take a look at the algorithms that social media use in order to get people more engaged because they can be easily manipulated. And we may need to do some uh, rethinking about, for example, the role of money in politics, which has become absolutely overwhelming. And although, you know, uh, 40 years ago, the Supreme Court thought money is speech, what it's doing now is drowning out speech. And I think that requires a serious look at our uh, at our system. Well, who has the political man? I could go so many different places here, <laughs> Michael. Who has the political will? I agree with you that money has really kind of squeezed out the average American in having a voice in the uh, political process. How do we change that? Who has the political will to be quite honest to change that? Well, I think you know one of the things we've learned in this. Uh, last four-year election cycle is that the center of the country, 
in terms of the political left center and right center has been more or less quiet and the loudest voices have been at the extremes. This may be a bit of a wake-up call uh, to both parties, and people who are kind of mainstream in both parties, that they can't be, be spectators anymore. We're going to have to take seriously the threat to the integrity of our institutions as we would take seriously bombs and, and, and uh, physical attacks. So I'm hoping when the dust settles here, uh, serious people on both sides of the aisle, as is true with the group that I'm with, say, you know what, America first, in the sense of American interests first, over the partisan interests or the parochial interests of some actors. Would there be a problem because of the Citizens United case, which sort of opened up this whole area? And also, during these times of such high partisanship, it seems like it might be a really an uphill battle to get over that. Well, first, I want to say everybody blames Citizens United, but actually the problem goes back about 30 years before that uh, to a case called Buckley v. Vallejo, right. which uh, upheld restrictions on contributions but not on expenditures. The idea being expenditures were speech. And what we saw, and all Citizens United do, did was kind of amplify it, was that people were able to overwhelm uh, the airwaves and other media and, the, and the, the kind of public forum with very carefully targeted and crafted messages. And this was made worse by the use of new data analytic tools to micro-target messages in a way that misleads people because you're not speaking to everybody and you have to calibrate your message so that everybody hears it but you can basically spin it to a very few people on on one side or the other side so i think you know if we if we value our democracy and our freedom people of goodwill are going to have to view the last few years as a real wake-up call and i think we need to seriously look at not, as I say, not just social media, but the role of general media, the role of money in speech, the role of gerrymandering, because these are all aspects of what has begun to take away majority rule in democracy and put it in the hands of well-funded uh, small groups. You know, Michael, I have to say, it was really fascinating this week to even watch um, mainstream media kind of bail on President Trump's press conference because... And they would come out and say, well, he's, not, he's, he's telling lies, essentially, is what they said. And I do wonder that this gets to a bigger issue that we've talked about on air about, you know, facts. Facts don't seem to matter. And we know facts on social media, they don't necessarily drive the algorithms, which drive, you know, the ad spending and the ad dollars. And I don't want to pick on social media, but I do think that there's going to media. I think that there has been a... A, almost a fear with this administration to correct things. Um, we certainly haven't felt that way at Bloomberg, but I'm just going to say that I think there has been a fear whether to be squeezed out of the press room or so on. And I, I wonder, how do we get a world back to, a country back to where fact really is important and it matters? Well, I th and I think that that means all the actors in the information ecosystem need to, first of all, consider what are their professional obligations? Why are they in the business? If it's just about making money with ads, uh, that's pretty sad. Uh, but I think most journalists and most editors, not everybody, do want to do something they think is socially valuable. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's been a reluctance to look at this because we get nervous anytime you know, we talk about getting to the First Amendment. But you know what my, my biggest um, 
optimistic course for optimism is the stakeholders, the customers, the clients, the viewers, they're getting exercised about this. We're beginning to see now, for example, some platforms have had to take down certain kinds of messages because basically they get boycotted by the advertisers. And that's, again, in response to what the public uh, wants and how the public reacts. So, again, it's mobilizing all of the institutions, not just of government, but of civil society, to put together a reasonable, balanced consensus approach that preserves true freedom of speech, but doesn't allow manipulation and overwhelming the public forum. Michael, just got about 40 seconds. If you could change one thing to ensure election integrity next time around, just quickly, what would it be? It would be to stop candidates from announcing in advance that an election is rigged or that it's fraudulent because that undermines our democracy. And we ought to hold candidates accountable for not sending poisonous messages. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, Michael, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much we all appreciate uh, your time on this Friday. Michael Chertoff, he is co-founder, executive chairman of the Chertoff Group, member of the National Council on Election Integrity. It's a bipartisan group, former Homeland Security Secretary, of course, who served under President George, D- George W. Bush.